Welcome back, everyone, to Pros and Cons. I'm Rob, and I think I may survive this. It's the last three chapters today of this very interesting book. Conspicuous by its absence, of course, is a plot tying the story together and things happening. But nevertheless, we're at the end. So let's see what that end is. Chapter 18, Jughead. This chapter, my friends, opens with just a passage of utter nonsense. Jughead describes the on-screen action of the showing of Independence Day that he's running at the Twilight Drive-In, and he makes just the weirdest faux-introspective observation off the back of this, like, random talk about the movie. Honestly, I have to quote the whole thing. Because there's no other way to convey the strangeness. Like, I just realized trying to describe what he said instead of just saying it doesn't work. So here we go. On screen, an alien mothership with one-fourth the mass of the moon had just entered the Earth's orbit. As you might imagine, the general public was not exactly chill about it. On one hand, to the casual, rational observer, this made perfect sense. But casual and rational wasn't really where I was at just then. Gentle listener, I ask you, what the fuck does that even mean? We have, we have to respect the text. We have to go by the text. Jughead describes the public panic that occurs when a giant fucking alien mothership appears. He then says, in effect, this reaction from a reasoned perspective, makes perfect sense. Alien scary. Yep, got it. But, Jughead goes on to say, I was not feeling reasonable at this time. The actual meaning of the opening paragraph of this chapter is that Jughead was feeling unsympathetic to the public panic on the Independence Day film that was being showed and felt that these nameless masses should, in fact, be chill about the invading aliens. And with the benefit of hindsight, he sees that he was in a bad emotional spot at the time, and perhaps it wasn't fully rational to expect the people in the movie to be chill about being invaded by aliens. God. This is so convoluted and weird. (laughs) Basically, the whole thing doesn't actually mean anything other than, I was feeling bad. Yet, it manages to take up an entire incredibly confusing paragraph to do a bad job of saying. I was feeling bad. It makes this crazy syntax puzzle of, like, what the hell he's even trying to say. And it's not worth the space or the brain cells that died in the attempt. Jughead then goes on to morosely rhapsodize about his dad's involvement with the serpents and the disintegration of his family. He soliloquizes that an alien invasion would be a potential improvement of his current situation, which is transparently incorrect. He has seen the film in question many times, and I recall there being numerous scenes of thousands of people being incinerated. 
I guess he's a teenager. <laughs> but, like, I'm mad that my dad's a crook. Maybe sad that my dad's a crook. Being posited as worse than millions die is peak self-involved teenage bullshit. But... We have to throw Ostow a bone here. That is Jughead, in a nutshell. So again, even in this book's most infuriating moments, which are most of them, it has a very Riverdale feel. Jughead then spots Moose, Midge, and Kevin watching the movie, seeming to have a good time, and occasionally throwing popcorn at the screen. This trio, this we know from the show eventually ill-fated trio, really had better have a sunroof, and at least one major league arm, because, need I remind you, this is a drive-in theater. And even if they are parked in the front, the screen is very far away, and the aerodynamic viability of popcorn is not exactly universally lauded. Joe's seen the Pussycats, or then seen hanging out, showing off some new group tattoo, that they got, and regaling whoever will pay attention to them with tales of how they prank and intimidate their opening acts before gigs to show them that they'll blow them away for sure at the show. What dicks? I, I know that Josie has like an overachieving perfectionist diva attitude in the show, but like turning these characters into bullies into shitty bullies for no purpose this isn't like central to the story it's not even tertiary to the story it's just a fucking thing that happens when jughead looks outside the projection booth just to fill time this is not an adequate reason to bury a character or characters god damn it we then get Reggie hitting on Josie very unsuccessfully, very apropos for the show. Cheryl is trying to drive Polly off due to the jealousy and potential twincest whole uh, situation they had going on at the beginning of the show. Reggie bullies Jughead a bit when uh, Josie stops paying attention to him, and I guess we're done here. Wow, this scene really did not earn its keep. Nothing has happened. Jughead's like, I'm sad. Here's some other people, what they're up to. Still sad. Jughead then calls his mom and sister in Toledo. Jellybean answers, and Jughead just enjoys hearing his little sister talking about what she's up to in the new digs. Uh, and that's it. That's the end of the chapter. So what... God, another Jughead chapter that amounts to nothing more than sad kid is sad. Uh, raise your hands if you're surprised at this point. And by the way, I can literally hear that no one is raising their hands. We then cut to an email from Clifford Bl from Clifford Bl I can't say Clifford Blossom. From Clifford Blossom to Hermione Lodge saying, na 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 your husband's going to jail. And there's a reply from Hermione that says, well, this isn't over. And yes, I am threatening you in writing. Uh, not a very measured response, nor a very smart one. We then get a something... I think, looking at it, that it's a text rendering of an online booking form for the Pembroke. In any case, there's a page, and what we get is that Hermione is going to be staying at the Pembroke for some amount of time, which we know from the show. We now move to chapter 19, the final Veronica chapter of this wretched tome. And this one doesn't quite disappoint. There's some interesting stuff here. 
apparently okay i don't want to mislead you it's not that like the book is good it's more of the same where i nitpick things and it's funny veronica (laughs) apparently is held against her will in the back room of this department store for an hour being berated for her bad attitude with the employees at this point okay Hiram controversy or no Hiram controversy. I don't care if her dad is a criminal and is about to be arrested. This fucking department store has literally kidnapped and imprisoned a child. They're fucked. They're going to be sued into the ground and pre-drawn and quartered in the court of public opinion. They are going to lose all their money. They'll be out on the streets. It is... Ugh... It is so awesome, whether on purpose or not, that Ostow does the same trick that Riverdale does constantly. For some cheap heat, they just write scenes that have these gigantic, unmanageable real-world ramifications that simply will never occur. Precisely in the mode of all the crazy shit you see in season two and onward of Riverdale. Like... Ah, what could create some conflict and tension in this very moment and then be instantly forgotten? I know this is an old reference compared to Riverdale, but I feel like Riverdale is written by Leonard Shelby from Memento. That's how I justify it to myself. They literally cannot cement the memories of the scene that they just recently wrote in their mind and they just write the next one. That's uh, that's my working theory from now on. And Osto has captured that feeling very well, probably by writing this book over a weekend, but possibly by being sneaky good at adapting the tone of a show. I almost feel compelled to do another Ostow book from a different intellectual property at some point, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Uh, my brain needs healing. Veronica's credit cards are all declined as she is released from child department store jail and attempts once more to buy the fateful purple dress. All three, she tries, in fact, are canceled. And all three cards are given Riverdale-style fake brand names. American Excess, which we know from the show, Vista, and Masterclass. (laughs) It's, It's fun, it's Riverdale, but it's weird that we do this in this book, because this is a text that you may remember, is roughly 30% brand names by weight. But okay. Veronica goes home and notes that the guard has changed, because it had taken, in her words, literally the duration of his shift, meaning the previous security guard, while she was detained at the store, which is weird, because she just said that she'd been in back for one hour. So, like, do their security guards do two-hour shifts? Or are we... To believe that the pages-long orgasm Veronica had about how great it is to be rich and in a department store was some kind of impressionistic passage covering the six hours and change she spent at the store before trying to buy a dress? Even if we account for some travel time each way. This is bizarre. (laughs) And she specifically said that her detention at the store took the entire security shift, meaning that there's just no way around this. She was detained an hour. Her detention was the length of a security guard's shift. His entire shift. Each security guard works for one hour. 
for the lodges. The lodges have at least 24 security guards. Maybe a couple held in reserve if someone's sick. God damn it. <laughs> the atmosphere is very weird and subdued at home, and Veronica hopes to just sort of sneak in through the servants' quarters and get some time alone, but her dad calls from her. The party, it turns out, the famous lodge a 4th of July party, is standing room only for how many cops and investigators there are. They're executing a warranted search and expect to bring Hiram in with them under arrest when they're done. She slinks away to her room, but Annie, Cam, and Nick are there. She thanks them for being there for her, but naturally, the shoe drops. They're just there to gloat and laugh at her, which, according to the way this book portrays her past actions, she basically deserves. But we know from the show that Nick St. Clair is a disgusting psychotic rapist, and so it is very uncomfortable to put him on the right side of some righteous anger. I kind of wish we didn't do that. Like, we knew that Veronica was a socialite and a bit of a mean girl and, like, kind of the queen bee and everything, blah, blah, blah. That's fine. But, like, the extremity of the bullying that that they've sort of pinned on her in this book... Uh, again, really sullies a character in a way that I'm not sure actually matches up with the show. I don't know. Veronica then finds out from Hermione that this was something that the Lodges had been worrying about for a long time, but didn't tell her about, probably hoping it would blow over and not wanting her to be anxious about it, and that there is a plan to move to Riverdale that was already in place, and they leave in the morning. So, again, we know that she jumps off of the limo or the plane or something, and immediately goes to Pops wearing a witch cape. And just that, according to this book, the timeline is just crazy. Like, she's just acting completely normal the literal day after her life falls apart. I can't even act normal the day I finish a long car ride. So, props to Veronica, I guess. I'm gonna miss this. <laughs> It's the Verona counter. 13 and a half pages this time. Uh, and it's, it's bleak. Two celebrity names, one film reference, 13 brand names. I mean, we're not going to go crazy and not have brand names, but this is so sparse compared to anything else so far. But how sparse? Let's go to the Beard, the Veronica Index of Referential Density. It's a 1.19. The next lowest one that had ever happened was 2.19. 1.19 down from 2.96. This is a crash. It's too late to sell. We're fucked. I do enjoy, however, the metatextual inference that can be drawn here, which is that Veronica, when under extreme stress loses her ability to think in brand names, to see the consumerist matrix within the code, and things just become dress, wine, etc. No brand names when she is traumatized. We close the chapter with a gossip piece from Hello Giggles, drenched in schadenfreude about Veronica and her situation by none other than Cleo. You know, the person who... Screwed Betty over, and I guess got away with it, because 
The next chapter is an Archie chapter and it's the last chapter? Holy shit! Betty's story is over! What?! Okay, we have to do- we have to- we have to dig into this a little bit because this is- this is breaking news. This is not in my notes. This is... holy shit. Last episode, you may remember, Betty's story ended with her finding out about Cleo deleting her article in that, like, improbably constructed computer system and getting super mad and doing the whole fingernails into the palms thing, whatever, blah blah blah. Okay, fine. That is a really unsatisfying end. There's no retribution. There's no resolution to that. It's just like, oh, a bad thing happened to you. Uh, and you're mad about it. And, like, the literal last line about Betty in this fucking book, then, is that she ignored another uh, text message or further delayed answering a text message from her sister. Okay, cool. That involves the story or whatever. But, like, okay. The thing that she found out that made Cleo mad at her and want to screw her over is that she was to be on-site handler for Toni Morrison at an upcoming event. No, she wasn't. Bullshit! She's gonna be back in Riverdale the next fucking day! This is... (laughs) She's staying late after work to do sleuthing about Cleo, but... This is literally the day that she has to fly across the McFucking country. She should already be on the plane. She she missed her flight. Betty Cooper is capable of teleportation. I guess that's how they're going to handle the Toni Morrison thing. She'll just like pop back after school and be like, "Sup? Don't mind me smelling like brimstone. I I'm here for Toni Morrison." Jesus Christ! The the timing of the, the oh God, the timing in this book, the the complete lack of attention to the timeline of the show that you're supposed to be prequeling. It's fucking amazing. Oh my God. Okay. Okay. <sighs> we can do it. One more chapter and a brief epilogue. We can do it. We can do it. And there's very little to say about chapter twenty. Chapter twenty. Archie. Archie mopes and mopes and mopes and mopes about how he's become so distant from his dad, Jughead, and his team, and how he misses Betty but couldn't tell her about Grundy. Now, bear with me. It seems like, to a more astute teenage idiot, that there could be a clearly seen through line in all these problems. But again, we have to just wallow in the disgusting honeymoon period of this statutory rape go-round because the other shoe doesn't drop until episode four or whatever of the show. Like, I just, I hate spending time in this. Couldn't we not have given Archie something else to fucking do in this book? We know that he ends up going camping with this sexual predator at, at the beginning of the first episode of Riverdale. That's fine. Like, it was always going to end this way. But, like, now that his part of the story is ending, it's making me more mad because I realize how little we've done aside from just him being all mooning over a sexual predator. It, it's just, it's so bad. Anyway... While getting ready to leave for his camping trip, Archie spots Polly, of all people, going through stuff in Betty's room next door. He knocks on the window and does the signal that he and Betty have worked out for a let's talk on the phone, uh, which apparently also works on Polly, and asks Polly if she has heard from Betty lately. Nope. 
Turns out, Betty is not in contact with either of them at this point. Polly can't tell Archie what she wanted to tell Betty. And leaving a note is out of the question because, of course, their mom searches all their stuff all the time. But she makes him promise to tell her that she was trying to reach her if he sees her first. We're then treated to a romantically styled scene of pre-statutory rape foreplay, which is just not something I enjoy reading about. And we get a sense that after a long, strenuous night of statutory rape, Archie awoke to a phone full of missed calls from Jughead and the sound of a gunshot. End chapter. End book proper. Yuck. Epilogue. It's a Jughead epilogue. We get two pages and change of stereotypical, grandiose musing about how everyone's stories were coming to some sort of end, and that those endings seeded new beginnings to new stories, all that kind of nonsense. There's really nothing interesting to report here, except for the fact that the epilogue begins with a variation of the Our Story is About a Town monologue from the start of episode one of the show, and the point of difference, the variation, is quite an interesting choice. Again, it starts with our stories about a town, a small town, and the people who live in the town, but then adds a comma, adds another clause, and then continues on with the from a distance, it presents itself like so many other small towns, blah 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 blah. So the thing that's inserted runs thusly. And the people who live in the town, who intersect each other's paths like wayward pinballs... Just gonna let that sit for a second. And there you have it. The people of Riverdale's lives interact with the lives of those around them in much the same way that pinballs following an unorthodox path or trajectory might. Thank you, Jughead. <laughs> that sentiment really sums up in like an accidental Zen koan way the depth and nuance of this book and indeed, of Riverdale. For pros and cons, I've been Rob, and finally, my torment can temporarily end. However... We have reached a milestone on Patreon that's going to allow Quinn to read this book. They have been sent it already. I'm not sure exactly the schedule on it, but I plan on getting their thoughts, getting their reactions, and a more... Uh, conversational, more loose, less detail-obsessed, and less it's fun kind of discussion about this book. And we're going to take it chunk by chunk. We're going to do, like, the prologue and morning for one episode, then afternoon, then evening and epilogue. So I'm looking really forward to getting their unfiltered thoughts uh, not colored by anything that I say. Like, I'm going to let them figure out their whole reaction, and we're just going to get into it. And it's going to be fucking great. Again, I'm not sure exactly when that happens, but we're going to get to it as soon as possible. And there are more Riverdale books, folks. So when we're done slaying this beast, you know what's going to happen. Look forward to it.